and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of lovely Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And Kobus, you know, being you being in Johannesburg, you're in the middle of all the action, and I'm sure you have probably run into a, le- a lot of our fans, legions of them, if not. Uh, but it hasn't happened to me yet. The first time was last week, so I want to give uh, a little shout out to Roderick Hodges, who stopped by to see me in Saigon. We had a nice lunch together. So I guess we'll put out a, an open invitation, which might be a dangerous thing to do on the internet. But uh, if you happen to be in Johannesburg or Saigon, and you're not an axe murderer, we'd love to see you. And so it was great to see Roderick, uh, and we talk China Africa for about an hour over Vietnamese food so uh, so again just drop us a line on Facebook and let us know if you're coming to town you know again please if you're psycho don't do this this is you know my wife was like oh god <laughs> don't announce on your show that you want to meet people but I got such a good kick out of meeting Roderick so I hope that uh Hope there's some other interesting <laughs> folks out there. Okay, let's move on. And uh, today we're going to talk about South Sudan. It's a topic that's been in the news for, I'd say, the past three to four months at least. And, and it's really presenting a problem not only for the Chinese but also for the Americans, not to mention for the Sudanese themselves. And increasingly it looks like there is a potential for a broader regional, if not a conflict, for destabilization. Uh, Kobus, let me just kind of give a little bit of back, uh, background information here before we get into our conversation with focusing on the specifics of the Chinese. Uh, Salva Kiir, who's the president, who's had a longstanding relationship with Beijing, uh, he had a falling out, to say the least, with his vice president, Riek Machar, and they have basically engaged in, in an all-out civil war. There are talks going on right now in Addis Ababa, and there are indications over the weekend from Saturday that there are there's progress that's been made. So far, there hasn't been. Uh, it's hard to see because we're getting conflicting reports out of South Sudan. On the one hand, we're seeing that there's progress being made uh, at the negotiating table. But on the other hand, uh, fighting is still going on. In fact, this, uh, the city of Bor was just recaptured by government troops. Um, Kobus, what's interesting with, uh, on the Chinese side of this is the Chinese have a lot at stake here. Um, and, and, and it really comes in the context of what happened in Libya in part because the Chinese, as they did in Libya, invested about $20 billion. Uh, $8 billion was pledged to Salva Kiir after secession. Uh, there was some debate over whether or not that real, that $8 billion number was actually real or not, because you remember when he came back to Juba, he said, $8 billion, and the Chinese went, uh, no, we didn't say that. Yeah, so, yeah, nonetheless, that, yeah. let's just kind of put the headline out there that there's a lot of money at stake for the Chinese. What else is at stake for the Chinese? Why do you think this is so important? important. Why has Beijing dispatched its top African diplomat, Zhong Jianhua, also uh, in his latest tour of the continent of uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, stopped in Addis Ababa, attended the sidelines of the talks, commented on the talks. So they're getting a lot of high-profile attention from officials in Beijing. What's at stake beyond just money for the Chinese? I think it's not only money in South Sudan. I think it's money in the wider sub-region, because um, the you know kind of there's, there's a certain amount of oil coming out of Sudan, and China imports quite a lot of that. Um, but there's potentially a lot more oil coming out of East Africa, particularly out of Uganda, um, and you know kind of that oil is is not is very conveniently positioned for for East Asian powers. You know kind of it's it's a much shorter trip to to import that that oil from East Africa than it is. From, to import it from West Africa. And of course, West Africa is complicated in lots of other ways as well. So there's been a lot of push supported by the Chinese to try and develop uh, East Africa as this, this um, kind of integrated 
you know, kind of economic hub um, of the new Africa. And oil and gas is central to that. Um, now the Ugandans are part of this fight. I mean, the Ugandans are officially you know, supporting Salva Kiir in the fighting. Um, and they have troops in South Sudan. So it has the potential to not only to escalate, but it has also the potential to disrupt a whole bunch of, of you know, kind of other long-term kind of projects that the Chinese have supported. Well, let's, let's kind of go one by one through some of the key players and understanding their agendas, and that will kind of put the Chinese in context here. Uh, first, when, when you talked about the importance of the Chinese uh, of oil to the Chinese, uh, in the first 10 months of 2013, China imported 14 million barrels of South Sudanese oil. Uh, now, that's two-thirds of South Sudan's total oil output. So in some ways, it feels like, you know, China is more important to South Sudan than South Sudan is not to China. And when you, my next statistic that I'm going to kind of unveil will indicate why. At the end of the day, South Sudan represents only 1% of China's total oil imports. So at the end of the day, uh, this is more important for South Sudan than it is for China because China has a very diverse supply of oil. Nonetheless, let's go through the list of players. You talked about Uganda. Now, there's one operating theory about why would Uganda get involved in this fight? Why would Uganda deploy forces to protect the airport, the presidential palace, and to be uh, to, to, to get into this partisan mugslinging? You know? And there's a thought, there's a theory that we put out in a Wall Street Journal article is because of this pipeline, Cobus, that you've talked about, which is moving the oil from South Sudan through Kenya or Uganda directly into the Indian Ocean, where then uh, ships can take it to Asia. Currently, right now, oil has to go north through Sudan, South Sudan's rival, for, for processing, and, and that's causing a problem. The problem is, is that to build that pipeline, Cobus, how much would that cost? I'm not sure of numbers, but it, it's, not, it's not going to be cheap. It's not going to be cheap. It's going to be significant. And it's yeah. going to take a lot of time. And, and this was where, you know, just to make complication, to make things more complicated, the Japanese are also involved in this as well, because during uh, Shinzo Abe's uh, latest tour, he said that, you know, maybe they're going to talk about financing that, that pipeline as well, correct? Yes, there's been talk that the Toyota Heavy Industries is actually going to build that. And from what I heard, that deal was signed, but I'm not sure whether it's contingent on stability in the country and whether it still stands. So the Ugandans have a stake in all of this because they want to be able to persuade Kier saying, listen, we helped you in a time of need. Payback is going to come in the form of that oil pipeline that will go through Uganda instead of going through Kenya to Mombasa. Secondly, we've got the Americans who are also present there. Now, the Americans have a very big stake in this because for a couple of different reasons. One, Sudan plays very well in Republican domestic politics in the United States. If you remember the whole Darfur campaign, which was really kind of taken on by the Christian right. Uh, so there is a lot of traction for that as well. But Omar al-Bashir still represents a kind of an enemy, if not enemy number one. He's in the top ten of American bad guys. Uh, and so they like having South Sudan as a buffer against uh, al-Bashir, you know, this kind of this idea of a democratic uh, Sudan in the south rivaling the Muslim Islamic Sudan in the north and the Americans like that. Secondly, the Chinese who are there, obviously they're looking at it for oil. But the question, you know, Kobus, that this all brings up in, in all of the coverage that we've been reading, you know, does China have the appetite for this kind of drama? Are they, are they approaching the end of kind of these high-risk, high, highly volatile oil uh, investments and that after what they lost in Libya, now what they potentially could lose in South Sudan, is it time for, uh, for China to move to more stable shores? 
The problem is, I think, is that they, they don't necessarily have that many stable shores to move to. Um, one of the reasons why they in these um, unstable regions to begin with is because Western companies have, you know, tended to, to have, you know, to occupy, to tie up all, all of the, the more stable oil powers. Um, and some other, you know, kind of large oil sources, um, it's impossible for them to move, to move into because of international sanctions campaigns. So, um, so to a certain extent, they're kind of forced to be there. Um, and to also, you know, kind of be heavily invested in Nigeria and Venezuela and, and so on. Um, I think, it's you know kind of one of one of the other issues that's interesting and that I haven't read that much about. I just saw some indications is that apparently, what or some some journalists have said that apparently um, the fact that Chinese oil workers were were threatened by the fighting and of, of course now the Chinese oil workers have been evacuated, but before that apparently um, the, the Chinese worked behind the scenes to get some help in from Sudan proper. So you know kind of now one of the weird things about about, about the South Sudanese civil war is that um, some of the government buildings and so on are being are actually being guarded by North Sudanese tre- troops. So in in this weird there's this weird moment where um, Al Bashir and and Salva Kiir are actually working together, um, and apparently China managed to ar- to arrange that in order to to safeguard Chinese troops. That's that's what I read, but I'm not sure. Okay, fair enough. So now let's kind of try and put ourselves inside the negotiating room. And where you've got the Americans, you've got Europeans, you've got the Chinese, and there's in, presumably you might even have the AU or some other African representatives there. I guess the question that I have is what leverage do you think the Chinese have other than money? And, and money may be a very powerful lever, but in, you know, in terms of bringing these two sides together and what can they do to actually force them to get together to, to bring peace about? Or do you think that the Chinese aren't the ones bringing the heavy stick, but it might be the Americans or someone else? Thing is, you know, kind of, I don't really know that the Chinese have that much more than, you know, kind of money and money's wider influence. Um, you know, so, and, you know, kind of maybe it, it that, that would be the, one of the most powerful kind of levers in the sense that the Chinese saying, well, look, this is turning very difficult for us. We might not be able to, to invest further in this area. That might be actually be more powerful than you know the Americans threatening some kind of action because everyone knows the Americans are, are very very tired of war at the moment and they don't want to get involved anywhere overseas. So you know kind of maybe that that would count for more, but I don't really see anything anything more that the Chinese really can do. Do well, you? Uh, well, I guess I mean, money is a very big weapon, and you know certainly they've you know they've had a good relationship with. Uh, you, you know, with the current president and the current administration of Salva Kiir. And, and I guess one option that they have is to kind of say, you know, to Rick Machar, listen, if you keep playing this, there's not going to be anything for you. That being said, if they play that, then Rick Machar says, I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to go for broke and, you know, screw the Chinese. I've got the oil. I'll sell it to somebody else. Remember, Malaysia and some other and India, I think, are also buying from the South Sudanese. So there's going to be a market for the oil, whoever wins at the end of the day. I guess for me, what I'm interested in is as much as from the Chinese side here. Uh, South Sudan has always presented a problem for Chinese foreign policy and the, the non-interference doctrine. Uh, if you go back to the early era of, of Chinese foreign policy, back to the Zhou Enlai uh, period, where he came out with one of the five principles of China's foreign policy was non-interference in the domestic or internal affairs of another country. And the Chinese have, have, have adhered to this religiously for the past 40 or 50 years since the Zhou 
era. The problem now is that this complicates it because you can make an argument that even the secession, the decision for China to approve the secession was an interference in Sudan's internal affairs. Uh, you can make an argument that them negotiating uh, you know, at these peace talks is, is an intervention. Uh, I don't know about an interference, but nonetheless, it's definitely a, you know, a participation in the internal affairs of another country. And so a lot of the analysis that we've been reading does address this issue of the challenge to Chinese foreign policy and will Sudan break this, you know, 40 plus year adherence to the non-interference doctrine? What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, kind of, I think well, one of the issues is that the non-interference doctrine um, seems to me to, to rest on a certain kind of logic in the sense that you know, the non-interference doctrine only works if you assume that the other side is either rational or that they – well, rational is the wrong word – that they that they have some kind of developmentalist agenda or, or you know, kind of state-building agenda in mind. So the, the non-interventionist policy doesn't work when you start having to take into, you know, kind of a, an, an opponent or, or another government into account that, that is completely nihilist. Um, and, you know, so I was looking at Wang Yi's um, kind of – four-point plan for what they think South Sudan should do, which he um, listed in an interview with Al Jazeera. And it's it's very basic. It's very kind of standard. It's there should be a ceasefire, then inclusive dialogue, then the international community should intensify the, you know, kind of their support for peace talks, and then they should, you know, improve the humanitarian situation. So fine. I mean, yeah, you know, that's I mean, a blah, standard. Blah, 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 blah. Exactly. But then, then you're looking to at, at Rick Mashar, and Rick Mashar is saying, um, you know, kind of they would be willing to, um, to, to talk about a ceasefire if Uganda withdraws. And keep in mind that Uganda is, um, you know, kind of is the reason why the, why the government has, has managed to take back certain key towns. So it seems, it seems to me that, that Rick Mashar pretty much wants to extend the conflict. They want to, you know, kind of they're, they're planning to perhaps go into this kind of murky, endless kind of conflict that where, where peace talks are frequently used as a way to buy time. You know, kind of that we've seen all over in Africa, like the Lord's Resistance Army is the classic, you know, kind of culprit with that kind of, that kind of tactic, people in the DRC as well. And I don't know whether the Chinese non-intervention you know, kind of policy really can handle that kind of tactic. You know, kind of it, it seems to, it, it only works when the government involved wants to get somewhere, not when they simply want to buy time and make things go on and hopefully they'll be able to win in somewhat sometime in the future. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. I, I think it's problematic, uh, you know, on, on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project where it, it typically kind of the different groups of our members fall into broad categories, but this is unfortunately a stereotype, but it's actually more or less accurate, that Westerners uh, tend to kind of look at the Chinese and everything they do as kind of disingenuous, kind of shallow and self-centered and whatnot. There's a lot of skepticism from Westerners. Africans tend to be a little more nuanced, Middle Easterners as well. And, and on our Facebook page, when, when we kind of posted an article about the, you know, Foreign Minister Wang Yi's uh, four-point or five-point uh, doctrine that he had for the peace talks, uh, there was a lot of kind of dismissal of that. And you're seeing the Chinese, that's nothing. These are broad platitudes, broad generalizations. 
And my only kind of comment on that is that the Chinese do not negotiate in public through the media for the most part. This is a very American and Western tactic to use, and it's not a Chinese tactic. So I would caution people about not coming to a conclusion about what the substance of Chinese diplomatic involvement, particularly by someone as skilled as Zhong Jianhua, based on kind of broad platitudes through the, through the press. That, that is a, those are two absolutely different things. So what we may be seeing on the outside is not reflective of what's happening on the inside. The other thing is that this may, in fact, not be as much of a challenge to the non-interference doctrine if the Chinese can say, we weren't the ones who brought them to peace here. We weren't the ones. We just, you know, helped, you know, along with our other partners from the United States, the European Union, and, of course, the two Sudanese parties. So in some ways, politics will play a part in this. At the end of the day, though, as China gets involved more in these high-risk, high-conflict zones, it will be interfering or intervening or involving itself, however you want to phrase that, uh, in these various conflicts, and I think it will present a bigger challenge to Chinese long-held doctrine on this frontier. But how do you see – okay, so let's assume now that we're going we're, – we're kind of getting to the end of this now. We're, we're finally starting to hear word of ceasefire. Let's assume the, U, the Ugandan troops will withdraw back to their barracks in Uganda across the border. How do you foresee China coming out of this? And looking now six months to a year down the line, where you may have the Kier government still in control, but maybe facing an insurgency or instability at best, how does China manage its multi-billion-dollar investment there? Well, you know, kind of, I assume that it will then be, you know, kind of a similar situation to what you see in the DRC, where there's these these kind of low level conflicts that flare up occasionally, and you know, kind of, and with that also the danger of of general kind of banditry, um, and for that reason, you you just have kind of oil installations that are really guarded and, you know, kind of and and fortified and you just keep a low profile as a big investor there, I, I guess. I yeah. mean I, I you know you know maybe there isn't that much kind of political gain to be to be had from this situation. In in the end maybe what, what China really wants is just stability. And it may get that, but at the same time let's not underestimate China's uh, ability to work in these very hostile, volatile environments. Uh, China now is the number one importer of Iraqi oil. Uh, Iraq itself is descending into a certain level of chaos, but nonetheless, the oil still continues to flow. Uh, the Chinese are have been some of the biggest beneficiaries of the American uh, invasion in Iraq and the, and the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. So in some ways, you know, what's happening in Libya, what's happening in South Sudan, in Iraq, is more what the Chinese are becoming increasingly accustomed to, as you said, that, you know, this is what they have to do. You know, China's economy must import an enormous amount of carbon energy every year in order to keep the lights on. And if they had a choice, maybe they wouldn't be in South Sudan, but but they don't have a choice. So uh, yeah, give me your, I mean, your final thoughts on, 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 on Chinese diplomacy and, and when, where this is all going. Well, you know, kind of, I think this is, this seems to be a quite a big test for Chinese diplomacy. Although, if, I don't think China would be blamed if, if the situation falls apart. You know, kind of, I think they might get a certain amount of, of praise if, if the peace holds. If there is a ceasefire and it holds, then they might well be seen as the, you know, kind of as, as the, the architects of that. Um, or, you know, at least people who contributed to it. Um, if, if everything falls apart and it's chaos, then I think everyone will blame Africa. You know, kind of as just a very, very kind of difficult place to, to be in. Um, 
I, I also wonder whether this this kind of bigger situation, all of these problems, are going to kind of accelerate research and you know kind of government support for for non hydrocarbon based energy in China. Whether in the long term this is going to actually may turn China into an even more aggressive developer of green energy, it might just in order to get away from all of this. It, it might, but at the same time, I mean that's so far down the road that they they have far more pressing immediate energy needs that mm-hmm. have to be solved in the next twelve months. Uh, yeah. That that you know certainly getting to green would be better, but it, it's that's a five, ten, fifteen year horizon thing in my opinion for an economy as big as China's. But at least you know with China, you know kind of their their system seems to lend itself more to this kind of macro planning, you know kind of because they don't necessarily have to deal with it's it's not like the American system where you're dealing with short term you know re-election cycles necessarily. Correct. So um, so it it might it might you know this kind of long long term engineering projects that China seems to be quite strong with them. And for those of you who follow from the Chinese side of the equation, I'd like to kind of direct you to David Shambaugh's book uh, China the Part. Power. I just finished it. He does have some mention of, uh, of South Sudan. Shambaugh, for those of you who are not familiar, is one of the great American sinologists. He's at George Washington University. He's, you know, long. He was the former editor of the China Quarterly. You know, people listen to him. And, and he comes out and he talks about China being the partial power. And that is, and this is a good example, that they, they will deploy high-level diplomatic talent to a conference uh, like what's going on in Addis Ababa, but won't necessarily kind of put a lot of you know weight behind their diplomatic position. So they'll get us parked there, but they won't actually go the, the full way. The, he also talks about, and this is an interesting prism to look at these debates and these discussions through, is that China's ability to actually influence the outcome of events is something that is uncertain at best. Although China is the world's second largest power uh, on an economic front, diplomatically, militarily, politically, it has a fraction of that. As David Shambaugh says, it punches far below its weight. So I think in some ways this is, Kobus, to your final point, it's an interesting test, you know, case study to look at in terms of China's broader global diplomatic initiatives and whether or not it is a full diplomatic power, a superpower as it thinks it is, but at the same time, it might also just be a partial power, as Professor David Shambaugh says. So, that'll do it for this edition of the show. We would love to hear from you. The best way to reach us is on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We're closing in on 150,000 followers from all over the world. We have great discussions there every single day of the week. Uh, Kobus and I are posting, uh, you know, almost 18 hours a day, actually, between Africa and Asia. So uh, we'd love to have your feedback, your comments. South Sudan's one of the stories that we follow very, very closely and, uh, and looking at China's diplomacy that's going on there. Kobus, if people want to stay on top of what you're reading and what you're doing, what's the best way for them to stay in contact with you? Well, I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can see Kobus and I, when we respond on Facebook, we put our names in brackets so you know who you're talking to. Uh, if you'd like to reach me on Twitter, you can do so at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. You can also follow our podcast on iTunes. That's the best way. But we're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, the BlackBerry Network, the Kindle, uh, any number of different places. Uh, we've got mobile apps for Android and for iPhone. So just look for us. Uh, those two apps and also our podcast in the iTunes store and of course we'd love to see you on Facebook so until our next show thank you so much for listening